Do not adjust your podcast listening device. Yes, we are here on a Sunday with a new podcast series featuring members of the EG team reflecting on the week that was, which could only be called EG Like Sunday Morning. I'm Deputy Legal and Professional Editor Jess Harold, and I'll be your host weekly. Some might say very weekly, as we provide some background listening while you enjoy your cornflakes, full English, morning jog, whatever works best for you. Joining me for this history-making first episode are Deputy Editor Tim Burke and our new London and Offices reporter Alex Daniel. Let's start with Alex. Now, you're a month into your full-time role so far. How are you enjoying the City Beat? Uh, it's great. I mean, it's strange not being able to be sort of out and about seeing all these these things I'm writing about, mm. uh, these buildings and offices. It's like a sort of abstract concept at the moment. But um, yeah, it's. I think January is always quite slow sort of in any industry, isn't it? But in property, it seems like everyone's sort of making their to-do lists for the year and, um, you know, not got around to doing any of it yet. And that's really been amplified by this kind of, this lockdown mm, uh, that yes. we find ourselves in. I think um, people aren't out and about, as I said, overseas investors especially aren't coming into the UK. Um, and I think agents aren't sort of taking people out and about as much as I'm sure they'd like to. Um, I think things are probably going to pick up soon, but Mm. um, as long as you're in this lockdown, that's going to sort of be relatively subdued, if not necessarily kind of as slow as the month we've just had. Yeah, I guess a a challenging time to take over as uh, London and offices reporter, um, but uh, you, you, I've seen you, you have obviously reported on some some deals so far. So, what is your sense of the market, and and do you feel there is optimism at the moment for the months ahead? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's sort of um, there's definitely a push pull going on. I think I think there's there's a lot of um, capital sort of primed and sort of aimed at London. Um, for the year ahead. Um, at the moment, I think people are still, as I say, getting going. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a few agents have sort of even talked about the fact that they're getting bored throughout January. And that makes me think that perhaps deals will start happening um, at least in March, if not sort of um, mm-hmm. mid to late February, as people you know, start kind of getting the wheels turning again as, as best they can. Um, there is a lot of optimism as, as well, though, sort of as ever. Um, London is, you know, it, is still a very attractive prospect in sort of the mm. global market. Um, people want to invest in London before most other places, places if not all other places. Um, and although um, although things have been relatively subdued, um, I think the strength of London um, is definitely something that people are falling back on and um, happy to talk up and encouraged by. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed uh, you're right and that, that before long you can you can get pounding the streets as well. Um, bringing Tim in uh, at this point, one of the big talking points of the week uh, is flexible offices. Uh, so what, what's been going on in this sector and, and if you'll forgive me, have flexible offices been stretched to breaking point? Oh, that's good. How long were you working on that one for? <laughs> uh, just workshopping <laughs> half an hour. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. Not quite as good as the EG like Sunday morning title, but it's but it's a good one. It's a good one. Um, yeah. Look, so Alex and I um, took a, a look at the state of the flexible and co-working office market for the magazine this week, and I think ever since we all realised that you know the lockdown that began last March wasn't going to be something that was over in 
just a couple of weeks, that whole debate around the future of the office, what it looks like, what we use it for, um, has raged. And a big part of that has been what happens to these flexible workspace providers. They were you know, meant to be the big disruptor of, of the market. And look, I guess logically you'd say that the flex space in its broadest sense should should benefit from this period, right? You'd, you'd think mm. that um, a lot of companies are probably going to see short-term leases and the ability to scale up and down quickly as as maybe preferable at the moment to taking a long lease on a traditional HQ that you're then that you're then stuck with. But what we've been seeing over over recent weeks and months is that a lot of these companies are actually running into real difficulties. So particularly those with a business model that means they've got long leases on space that they can't bring in any any revenue on, um, suddenly they're burning through cash and, and that's become a real a real problem for a lot of them. So we saw we saw this week um, Notel, which is uh, which has got you know a pretty sizable London portfolio. Notel agreed to sell itself to Newmark Group, and as part of that, it said it was going to put the U.S. part of its business into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And you know from discussions that, that Alex and I have been having with people in the industry, it feels like we might now see more and more of these players having to take what will seem like pretty drastic steps to to shore up their businesses and um and maybe arise in kind of distressed M&A where where players maybe that have the money to spend uh, are able to snap up snap up some of their their rivals when they run into difficulties alex what what were people telling you about what 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 might happen with demand and and that market as it reshapes um, again, it's it's sort of um, a double-edged sword at the moment, isn't it? I think, as you say, Notel being the sort of the latest example of um, one of these companies struggling um, and going under. I think um, it's really a time that separates the wheat from the chaff in flexible office market. I think um, the WeWorks and IWGs of this world, um, the office group, these kind of companies, sort of the bigger players are probably fairly well insulated and probably um, doing just about fine if they can get through to the other side of this pandemic, at which point um, it is anticipated that um, in an uncertain office market, um, people will increasingly turn to flex space. It's sort of the first thing to go and the first thing to come back. And I think there is real hope that it will bounce back sort of higher to to greater heights than it was at before um, in sort of the coming years. Um, that being said, I think there is still a lot of concern because no one is using the offices at the moment. Yeah, so uh, potential long-term benefits from an increase in agile working in general post-pandemic, but there's an awful lot of uh, rough waters to navigate between now and then because um, I imagine, you know, with the vaccine rollout, in that period where some people are going to be vaccinated, other people aren't, maybe flexible offices might find it more difficult to rebound than traditional offices because they don't have that kind of nexus of control. You know, employers can welcome, say, staff back into their own uh, regulated offices maybe a little bit more safely or quickly than than in flexible offices. Do Do you think that could be a potential problem? Yeah, I think so. I think there will be I think there will be big questions from tenants over which operators can give them the security that they mm. need. And I, I think it'll be the it'll be the providers that show they can go above and beyond in sort of meeting 
probably pretty quickly changing requirements when we get to whatever the next stage of this of this crisis is. I, I think to Alex's point, I think it's completely right. This, it isn't this isn't so much in my mind a discussion about the future of Flex, but it's about which companies are even going to still be around to drive that future. So you know, I think I think ten years from now, Flex. Flex will be a hugely important, mm. still a hugely important and probably larger part of the office market. I think the question will be over which companies, which companies are driving that and which companies define it. And they, you know, it might be it might be some of those names that we're talking about today that Alex mentioned. Maybe it's you know maybe it'll be a brand that um, that hasn't even been dreamt up yet. But I think either way, it definitely feels like the events of the last year and what we're heading in, heading into now are going to be a proper a proper landmark for that market. Mm. And obviously, a lot of talk on 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 uh, sort of disused retail space and another uh, property like that. A lot of the talk is how that could be reworked into more flex office space to to meet increased demand down the line. Yeah, I think if uh, you know, I think for for operators that that have got the right backing and maybe that's you know sort of larger pools of institutional money and with uh you know those that are nimble those that have got maybe a more inventive approach to some of the challenges that the market's going to face yeah i think there's i think there's plenty of opportunity out there but you know as alex as alex says i think there's pain as well and i think you are you're going to see a lot of a lot of names perhaps the smaller brands sort of fall by the wayside mm. um you know as we as we head through this year and and onwards from there so yeah, a bit of consolidation in in the marketplace most mm. likely. Uh, turning away from flexible offices, Alex, one of the pieces uh, I particularly enjoyed of yours this week uh, involved Westminster City Council um, and uh, and Elad Eisenstein, who's who's busy masterminding uh, the post-pandemic recovery of London's Oxford Street. It seems he's uh, casting envious eyes across the channel to the Champs Elysees. Yeah, well, exactly. Elad Eisenstein is um, sort of newly appointed, as you say, the mastermind behind uh, Westminster City Council's big turnaround plans, big uh, transformation plan for the Oxford Street region and kind of the West End at large, I guess. Um, He's, uh, yeah, he was looking at um, Paris's plans for the Champs-Élysées to turn it into what uh, the Parisian mayor called an extraordinary garden. Um, earlier this month, which sort of tells you all you need to know, really. Um, they're going to sort of plant um, hundreds, maybe thousands of trees. Um, traffic's going to be cut in half. Uh, lots of green spaces, hopefully lots of kind of small scale, um, typically Parisian traditional mm. kind of shops will pop up along the way. Um, it's an area that has um, for quite a long time now been seen as a bit of a tourist trap and the sort of place that Parisians don't want to go. It's a bit busy, too many cars, too many expensive shops. And so you can see the kind of the obvious parallels with the <laughs> Street. Absolutely. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, Elad Eisenstein was saying that although Oxford Street is not necessarily going to become an extraordinary garden, although uh, we can't rule it out yet, um, it is... Uh, the vision, the strength of the vision behind what Paris was doing, Mm. um, that was what Oxford Street needs to aspire to. Um, There have been a lot of false starts on this Oxford Street transformation over the last few years. Um, 
I think there was a big pedestrianisation plan a few years ago, which got um, sort of uh, downvoted by residents um, because they were concerned that all the traffic on Oxford Street would divert it through the back streets um, for very understandable reasons. Um, and I think he essentially wanted, he wants a plan that will galvanise everyone into having a kind of collected shared vision um, that everyone can get behind. And I think one of the one of the things he said, it was from a panel discussion a few weeks ago with some business leaders in the area as well. And one of the things he said was um, that we all need to be able to get behind this plan. And although we won't agree on all of the details, um, the strength of the vision is something that will sort of unite everyone that's working towards a better Oxford Street. And um, they're going to announce sort of the details of this grand transformation plan, hopefully the last one that they have to announce <laughs> after the many false starts um, in a couple of weeks time. Um, it's understood, although there's no specific date for it yet, but mm. lots of anticipation for that. Maybe we can check back in on that uh, once it's been announced. If nothing else, uh, Robert Jenrick must be hugely excited about the prospect of a tree-lined Oxford Street. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. It would be brilliant to have a tree-lined Oxford Street. I think a lot of their plans revolve around kind of um, public realm and making it sort of sustainable and green and maybe not so sort of littered. And mm. I think I would imagine there will be some pedestrianisation too. And obviously that would sort of... Um, that would help with kind of the COVID recovery as well, which is a kind of not insignificant hurdle that I think mm. uh, Elad Eisenstein needs to needs to get over as well. A lot of the plans that he was talking about were as much as the long term sort of 10 year plan for the area. Um, it's getting through the next uh, year, two or three, mm. that um, is going to be the initial challenge. And I think if they can, it will be a real challenge to integrate a long term plan into the COVID recovery. Absolutely. Uh, one other thing, Tim, uh, since we have you here, uh, our, our resident master of the markets, uh, it would be uh, <laughs> remiss not to ask you about what's going on in the stock market. Any interesting stories out there this week? Um, it has been, well, yeah, it's been a remarkable couple of weeks, really, although it, it's not necessarily linked to real estate, but it feels like the, the story that you can't really avoid. And I'm sure everyone's read about this um, this movement where we saw retail traders in the US hatch a, a plan essentially on the Reddit message boards to push up the price of stocks that hedge funds had short positions in, meaning mm. that the hedge funds the hedge funds didn't want those those prices to rise uh, as I guess I guess a way of of punishing those hedge funds for trying to capitalize on struggling companies like. Um, uh, I guess the one that caught the most attention was GameStop, which is this mm. video game retailer in in the states. Um, it, this was this was really something to watch, and uh, it didn't it didn't feel like it uh, it had so much of an effect, you know, on um, on this side of the pond. Although there were some signs of it influencing, I think, some trading in UK shares. So Hammerson, which is uh, you know a, a much shorted company, saw uh, a pretty big spike. In its in its own share price as this went on, but um, yeah, it was really quite a it was quite a remarkable um, movement to see. But I have to say, for me, it was just a blip in my stock watching compared to my obsession with what was going on with One Heritage Group, which I think <laughs> everyone at EG is now sick of hearing me speak <laughs> and write about at this at this point. But um, 
Have you got to the bottom of the mystery yet? Well, I, I haven't. I'm not sure whether the managers at, at One Heritage Group have either. So, <laughs> so just to recap, this is a this is a developer with backing from a parent group in Hong Kong uh, and uh, and a, 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 a portfolio of of developments in the northwest of England. IPO'd in London just before Christmas at 10 pence a share, and then the shares have just gone gangbusters since. So they went as as high as 64 64 pence. And today are somewhere around, he, he checks, somewhere around 47, 47 pence. So just soaring above what the listing was at. And what's interesting is, you know, as you say, there's no notable news to have driven it. So the company itself has had to put out two stock market statements uh, confirming that its management team don't know of any reason that these shares should have performed quite as well as they have. That, uh, you know, no reason that they wouldn't have had to um tell shareholders of so yeah forget watching GameStop it's all about one heritage group for me I can't wait for the I can't wait for the next rally in a rally in those shares and try to work out what's driving it so anyone who lumped on zoom at the start of 2020 and then diversified <laughs> to one heritage group at the start of 2021 is is doing very well they could have done spectacularly <laughs> I don't know what you'd call that portfolio approach but yeah it would have been the one to, <laughs> would have been the one to pick <laughs> Uh, great. And uh, lastly, uh, just to either of you, either in work or outside of it, what, have there been any other highlights for you this week? Can I give an outside of work highlight? Absolutely. Mine has been um, working with my eldest on a, a newspaper for his um, class project for English. He's been writing a front page uh, announcing the assassination of Julius Caesar, which... Wow. I mean, that's not a bad front page, you know, as, as splashes go, it's pretty strong, I think. What's, what's the headline? So, um, well, his initial his initial headline, oh, I, I feel mean now that I laughed because he was really happy with it, was um, Caesar falls to the ground, but which I suggested Caesar dead might just be um, the snappier way to put that. But I got a bit obsessed working with him on it and was sort of talking him through how to put together stand firsts and whether he needs crossheads in this story mm. and all this, all this sort of stuff, none of which I think he was... He was that taken with, but I reckon that if I if I push him and really drill home some of these steps, um, I could have him doing the market wrap next week. <laughs> it's it's quite reassuring as as we are still all uh, in 2021 print journalists at least some of the time that that school children are being taught what newspapers are. That's, that's yeah, quite... it's a good, that's that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're right. Yeah, there's, long there's hope. Continue. There's hope for us yet. And and Alex, what what have you been up to this week? Oh God! What is a newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm still looking forward to the day that I get to meet my new EG colleagues. Um, I haven't been into the EG office yet. I haven't met any of you guys in the flesh. Um, everyone's been lovely. Um, it's been a great first month, but I just can't wait for that. It's going to be lovely to all go for a drink at some point and actually yeah. also meet some of um, the, the many people in the market that I've been uh, interviewing and, and talking to and, and badgering and all that kind of thing over the last couple of weeks. Um, it's been, um, as I say, quite a strange January and I think looking forward it can only get better. Uh, well, I can assure you that we, we are all three-dimensional. Uh, we're not <laughs> just... my concern. <laughs> <laughs> what if nobody's real? What if you're not real? Yeah, so we're all part of the matrix. Which, which pill did you swallow? This is the question. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Thanks uh, both Tim and Alex for joining me uh, and sharing the authority and expertise for which you've become known. After all, that's why we're EG. We're EG like Sunday morning.